kid that comes up to him and just sticks their fingers right in his fur and just loves on it and everything. But the one sibling above, about a, I don't know, maybe a year older, I'm talking about little kids. He looks up at me, or she looks up at me and says, is this a poodle? And he's a little golden doodle, right? We got it from um, Ruth uh, and Gary as puppy, and we've uh, just, this dog's great. And I, I said, well, you know, he's got a lot of poodle in him. And she wasn't satisfied with that, looked up at me and said, but is it a poodle? I said, well, you know, just to be clear, he's got a lot of poodle in him. And then she said, so he's a poodle. <laughs> and I said, yes, he is. He is a poodle. And, you know, it just kind of, we've gotten the biggest kick out of that with that dog. But I will tell you that sometimes it's necessary, right, as that kid did with me. Sometimes it's necessary to just keep coming back to a subject, keep coming back to a subject until it's settled. And everyone in the room or everyone the recipient of a letter gets it. So he's a poodle. Well, yes, he is. That's exactly what's going on this, in this morning's passage. And I'm going to admit ahead of time, I'm not getting all the way through this passage, although I've started to study in Romans 12 on Wednesday nights. I'm going to interrupt it to finish this passage then. So don't get nervous when we make some slow progress um, on, on making our way through this. But I, the, uh, the Lord kind of gripped me early on in the chapter, and I'm going to linger there for a while. Um, so that's my preface. Let me add this preface. Good, sound doctrine leads us to prayer and to worship. Good, sound doctrine leads us to prayer and to worship. When we were last together in Ephesians, now five weeks ago, right, Paul had peppered the Ephesian church with sound doctrine regarding the creation of the church. It's all throughout chapter 2. It picks up right now in chapter 3, and that's why we inserted in there a five-week study on the church, right? That good, sound doctrine of the church was centered in on chapter 2. Look back at chapter 2, verse 12. You'll notice where he's landing here. In chapter 2, verse 12, we learn that those who had previously been separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, they had no hope, they were without God in the world, the Gentiles, right? They had been brought near by the blood of Christ. Not only that, chapter 2, but through Jesus, verse 18, born-again believers, whether they were Jewish descent or Gentile descent, they have access in one spirit to the Father. So writing of this sound doctrine in chapters 1 and chapter 2 leads Paul just to want to slam the brakes on and pray, even in the midst of his letter. That's why in the beginning words of chapter 3, he opens up with these words, for this reason. He's pointing back to this good sound doctrine that he's been delivering, and it leads him to want to just stop and pray and ultimately worship. But Paul even interrupts that train of thought, right? And he interrupts that train of thought in the opening words of chapter 3 to reiterate a couple of things, just like my little 
buddy friend who is at the community center. He's wanting to reiterate a couple things and make sure that the Ephesians get it. He won't come back to his initial train of thought, which is to pray until verse 14 of chapter 3. So you've got this, this relative parenthesis that he just has the first half of chapter 3 um, to reiterate these things of what he's talking about. In this parenthesis, he'll discuss and reiterate his own calling. He'll also reiterate the mystery of the gospel. And then ultimately, which we'll talk about Wednesday night, he's going to reiterate the purpose of that gospel as it was realized in Jesus. Okay? Now, turn your attention to chapter 3. And although I'm going to be spending the majority of my time in the first couple of verses, I want to read verses 6 through 10 this morning. So drop your eyes down there to verses 6 through 10. This is, this is basically the heart of the parenthesis. This is the word of the Lord that I share. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Verse 7. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This is the word of the Lord and the heart of what we want to consider in the next couple sessions, starting this morning. Um, but before we do that, I want us to consider Paul's circumstances and his perspective, both of which have gospel-orienting potential for us. So take your eyes back up to verse 1. I want to direct your attention to verses 1, 2, and 3, and verse 13, all of which can fall under the heading of number 1, circumstances and perspective. Circumstances and perspective. Notice the first words. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of of you Gentiles. Let's think about this. What are Paul's circumstances when he's writing this? First thing we must see, not only from the context of history, Acts 28, but also what he says right here in verse 1. Paul is a prisoner of Christ. So Paul's writing this from Rome where he would spend the last where he's been, he'll spend the last two years of his life. We actually don't see him pass away at the end of chapter 28 of Acts, but 
we, we know that, kind of given historical context, he'll spend the rest of his life under house arrest in Rome until he dies. But it's important for us to see that Paul considered himself not a prisoner of Rome, although they held the keys and the chains of his house arrest, but he considered himself a prisoner of Christ Jesus. And he wrote about this in many letters. He writes about it in Philemon. He writes about it in Philippians. He writes about it in First and Second Timothy, and not least of which is right here. When he wrote to Timothy, he wrote to Timothy from another prison cell, and he encouraged his young protege, hey, don't be ashamed of the testimony of Jesus, and don't be ashamed of me, his prisoner. Why would he write these things? Because he had been called to carry the message of the gospel to the Gentiles. And bitter Jewish opposition rose up against him at every turn. However, in spite of dangers and risk that, that his mission and his message presented, Paul was never deterred. Paul lived... For the glory of another. And in my notes, I've capitalized the word another. Paul lived for the glory of another and for others. Confident that his sufferings were resulting in the salvation for others. To the Corinthians, he would write a, a message. And I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 6, <clears throat> he writes these words. Forgive me. 2 Corinthians 1.6. I too turned to 1 Corinthians 1.6 and I said, Oh no. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope, verse 7, for you is unshaken. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Thinking about Philippians chapter 1, verse 12, on your way back to Ephesians, stop there. So turn over to the right, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Jump over Ephesians and land in Philippians. Philippians chapter 1, verse 12. <clears throat> Verses 12 through 14, I want you to hear Paul's perspective on his time in prison, physical prison, as a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He writes, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. 
so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul is a prisoner of Christ. These are not just empty words. It's part of what makes up not only his circumstances, but his perspective about his circumstances. And that's the sidebar that we're, we're working toward, if you'll hang with me just a second. He's a prisoner of Christ. Now look back at Ephesians. He's also a steward of grace. He's a prisoner of Christ. He's a steward of grace. I'm back in Ephesians chapter 3. Now I'm going to read from verses 2 and 3. Here's what he says. Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. Now Paul identified himself as a steward, and he's a steward of God's grace. In other words, Paul was called uniquely to manage the explanation and the offering of God's plan of salvation to the Gentiles. He was called the steward, that great calling. Paul writes a strange thing here. He says, hey, I'm assuming you've heard that the high calling of stewardship of this message was given to me as a gracious gift. Isn't that interesting that he would say, um, I'm assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace. He says, I've written about this briefly. <clears throat> There's kind of a lot of, been a lot of ink spilt over what he means by the fact that he's written about this briefly. A lot of folks think and assume that, hey, I've written about this some in chapter 1, I've written about it some in chapter 2, and now in chapter 3, I'm reiterating it. And I think there's a great case for that, and I believe actually that's what's going on. He says, I've written about the mystery of the gospel, the union of um, fellowship between God and man, and also man and man in chapter 2, and now I'm coming back to it here. It could be that in all of the elements of Paul's letters where he's alluded to this mystery of the gospel, he's now coming down to nail down the truths of those things currently and right now. Regardless of what it is he's meaning here, something he's touched on previously, he's now nailing down for our, our good and uh, to the glory of God. Before we look at the mystery itself that he's talking about, before we look at the mystery itself that he uh, has been uncovering, I want us to consider a point of application. I actually think it's the purpose of the entire parenthesis. The application has everything to do with Paul's perspective. As a little defense here for why I think it's probably the purpose here, he opens up his parenthesis speaking of his imprisonment for Christ. He closes it asking the people of Ephesians, don't lose heart for what's going on with me. Because what's going on in my life right now as a prisoner for Christ is your glory. So, it's all boiling down here to a matter of his perspective. Let's think about that. Paul's perspective. We've seen Paul's circumstances. Now I want to touch on Paul's perspective. Just for the sake of your own knowledge of where it is in your text, look down at verse 13. 
Verse 13 says, So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Paul is an illustration on godly perspective. Paul was pleased to suffer on their behalf because it led to God being glorified and them being saved. The starting and ending point of Paul's perspective, catch this, was the fact that God is in control of everything. And in that truth, he could rest in spite of his circumstances. We will all, you and I, we will all do well to get to the place of worshipful confidence. Worshipful confidence that whatever God ordains is not only good, but it is best. He alone knows what is best, and He alone knows what is necessary to bring about His purposes. Paul so radically believed in, and he so radically relied upon, and he so radically trusted the sovereignty of God, which is a term kind of that can be applied to the fact that what God, God ordains all things, and he's in control of all things. He so radically believed in and relied upon and trusted in the sovereignty of God that he refused to be controlled by his circumstances. He doubled down on this when he writes the words of Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Right? You'll know this, it's very familiar to us, but hear it in light of what I'm talking about. He writes, and we know, we're confident in this, he says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Hear me, Paul was not controlled by his circumstances. Rather, he trusted that God was working in and through his circumstances to bring about a glorious purpose. When a believer's perspective is informed by the sovereignty of God and eternity, they are less likely to be controlled by their ever-changing circumstances and more likely to press on by faith to the glory of God. Most of us, myself being the, probably the chief of all, most of us and most of our perspectives Start with us instead of God. Which leads us to make short-sighted, self-promoting decisions. Decisions oftentimes that, that are fueled by our desire to get out from under whatever the pressure is that's weighing heavily upon us. Allow me to offer some examples of perspective. Think about Joseph in Genesis. Whether from the bottom of the pit 
or from the dungeon. He could have been controlled by his circumstances. But he got to a place, by God's grace, he, well, I don't think he was always there, but he got to a place where his perspective enabled him toward the end of his life to say something like this to his brothers. Do not fear. For am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many, bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Perspective. Think about the rich young ruler. If the rich young ruler knew then what he knows now, would his perspective have been different about laying it all out on the table and leaving it behind to follow Christ? Perspective. The Jeremiahs named their baby, Baby Jack, after the great pioneer missionary John Payton, who was a missionary to the cannibalistic New Hebrides in the early, mid, early to mid-1800s. John Payton wrote his autobiography, and in his autobiography, um, we read one of the most famous quotes about his life. Right? and about people who tried to talk him out of pursuing what God told him to do. Circumstances were saying, this is not a good idea, John. He writes, Amongst many who sought to deter me was one dear old Christian gentleman whose crowning argument always was, the cannibals! You will be eaten by cannibals. It's convincing. John Payton replied to this man, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or eaten by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. I think you'll agree with me that this is a God-honoring perspective that is informed by the sovereignty of God and eternity. It helped John Payton fight against the temptation to be controlled by his circumstances, even when the circumstances could have meant death by cannibalism. It can help you not be controlled by your circumstances also. Whatever circumstances you're in the middle of currently. All of our circumstances are unique to us, right? But none of our circumstances are outside of God's sovereign control in our lives for His glory and our good. I got a text yesterday from a friend who lives out of town. We, we don't see him as often as we'd like to. But it described the difficulties that he's walking through currently. He said, I'm having a hard time. And then he went on to explain how he's just had his his spinal cord fused from his C3 down to his 
I don't even know how to say it. Sacrum? Forgive my ignorance on that. Says I'm having to start taking medication to ensure that my shoulders and my ribs don't freeze up. Circumstances. The believer who trusts deeply in the sovereignty of God will look at those things not, yet, not, not necessarily rejoicing, but trusting and moving toward confident worship that the God who knows is the God who is using all those things for His glory and our good. And it enables us not to be controlled by those circumstances. I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Paul could have said, you know what? I've given my whole life to this message. What am I doing in the house arrest? You know what? I've quoted, I've, I've dictated this letter from this prison. I've had to pick myself up off the ground having been beaten by people who oppose the message. But he never does that. He recognizes that his perspective was one in deep confidence in the sovereignty of God and in deep hope for the coming of eternity. Oh, that we all, by God's grace, grow in this area so that we won't be controlled by our circumstances, which come and which have a tendency to buckle our knees at times. That's why the psalmist says, Oh my soul, why, am I, why are you so downcast? We all need to be reminded of the gospel and our confidence in God in the midst of life. But oh, that we would all, by His grace, grow in this area so we won't be controlled by our circumstances, but we would be together compelled by the gospel and held fast by confidence in the sovereignty of God. Let me offer you a, a few just positive helps. I hope they're helps. They're helps for me in growing in this area. And let me encourage you to consider just a couple practices. I say a couple. I've written down five. Number one, pray and ask God to grow you up in the area of having godly perspective. Surrender your perspective to the Lord in prayer. Pray. Number two. Lean in when we together sing songs like He will hold me fast or Be still my soul or It is well with my soul or frankly any of the songs that we try to put forth on a Sunday morning because our hope in putting them together and before us is that they would help anchor us in the gospel and encourage us in our walk with the Lord. Number one, pray. Number two, lean in and sing good songs. Number three, this is a bit long, just listen for the gist of it and you can write any reminder you would have. <clears throat> When sharing with your D group about the circumstances of your life, fight the temptation of making your circumstances the center of the story. And open yourself up to your brothers and sisters in the Lord 
as they preach the gospel to and over you. We need that. That text yesterday was not just an invitation for me to hear of the circumstances. It ended with, with basically, thank you for hearing and thank you for speaking in. Number four, put these in whatever order they need to be in. Read your Bible a lot. Look for the myriad of evidence, evidences that highlight God's hand as He brings about His plan which He set forth in Christ to unite all things in Him. Do not be discouraged that our culture and world discount the Bible. It has been under attack since the beginning. But don't just lean in. See it as manna for daily digestion. See it as water that quenches the greatest thirst. See it as truth that makes paths straight. See it as never ending. For the grass withers and the flowers fade. But the Word of our God stands forever. Read the Bible a lot. And then finally, read good books. And make sure your reading list includes biographies of pioneer missionaries from whom we can learn a great deal in this area that I'm talking about. Number one, pray. Number two, lean in as we sing. Number three, make sure that when you're sharing with believers that your circumstances aren't the center of the story, but the Gospel is. Read your Bible a lot. And number five, Read good books. Let's move on. As I make just a couple points from the next couple of verses. I want to move to the content of what Paul wanted to reiterate. What is the mystery that he had been called to proclaim? Verses 4-6 through six here, mystery and revelation. Here's what he writes in verse 4. When you read this, so in other words, I've written about it briefly some other place, but now when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. So a word about insight. The word insight refers to the ability to understand concepts and see the relationship that exists between them. Paul grew up a student of the Scriptures, but it wasn't until God turned the lights on for him that he understood that everything that he had studied from the Scriptures up to that point had been pointing him to Christ and His glorious Gospel. His insight. It was given to him by revelation. It was given to him as a grace. And then he goes on in verses 5-6 to six to give a general explanation of mystery and then to give a specific explanation of the mystery in his context. Okay, So let me just kind of point out verse 5, this mystery defined generally, and then move to verse 6 as, as we close. Verse 5. <clears throat> He's just said, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. There's the subject. And then he writes this, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, 
He's pointing back to Old Testament generations. He's even pointing back to his childhood until the revelation of God came to him miraculously, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So Paul's not using this word mystery in the way that we might. Right? He, he's, he's not talking about pulling up the chair and watching a good Agatha Christie mystery movie with everyone else or, or kind of tuning into a Sherlock Holmes mystery. This is not the mystery that he's talking about. When Paul is stressing mystery, he's talking about something that was previously unknown but that is now by God's grace known. And it happened as miraculously as it did on the road to Damascus and it was a grace. Paul is stressing that the specifics of the mystery revealed to him was by grace and not something that he figured out. Walk back to the Old Testament with me real quick and you see a picture of this. So Daniel was a, uh, he was an exile who was taken to Babylon and he, they saw great promise in him so he became one of those folks who grew up and was trained in under the tutelage of leaders, and he became an advisor to Nebuchadnezzar in the leadership there. And one day, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And the dream so shakes him that he called his wise men, Daniel included, he calls his wise men together and says, hey, I've had a dream, I need you to tell me what it means. And like any good advisor, they says, we got this. What was the dream? And he just kind of ramps it up a little bit and says, no, no, no. I'm not going to tell you that part. You're going to tell me that part, and then you're going to tell me what it means. O oh, great King Nebuchadnezzar, may you live forever, but may you give us a clue of what the dream was. That's what I would have said. But Daniel had the dream revealed to him by God and the explanation. No less miraculous than what happened with Paul. So he's saying this mystery has been unknown for years has been unknown for generations, but now God has been gracious to open up the doors and make it known to me. That's the mystery that's referred to throughout much of the, of the Bible. In verse 6, he gets specific about the details and minutia of the mystery he's talking about in Ephesians, specifically chapter 2. Notice this. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So there are things here that are true of this mystery because of the gospel. Number one, they're fellow heirs. To this point, I simply want to refer you back to chapter 2, verses 14 through 18, where he has already written about this, albeit briefly, right? He says, For he himself, speaking of Jesus, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him 
We both have access in one spirit to the Father. They were fellow heirs. In Christ, that which had been limited to God's chosen people is now being abundantly offered to all people who would trust by faith that Jesus was the Son of God and the work that He performed and completed on the cross was sufficient to save them. He created at that time a new people, the church. He also made them members of the same body and partakers of the promise. The words members of the same body, so I'll put this in quotes, members of the same body in our English Bible is actually one compound word in the Greek. It combines the word altogether and the word body. It squishes those together and Paul, almost like you and I would say, hey, did you see that huge something or another over there? It was, it was ginormous. Well, what is ginormous? Well, it's a made-up word to mean really, really big, like uber big, right? And Paul, it's almost like he's, he's dictating and writing all these things about the glorious mystery of the gospel whereby two were made into one so that when, as people are experiencing unity but with God, they're also experiencing this countercultural unity with each other among peoples that shouldn't get along with each other. And he says... They're members of one body, and he makes up this word that's squishing together all together and body, and it's the only time we find it in the New Testament, and for all I know, it's the only time it ever existed because Paul just spewed it out on this word to get his point across. This is why he can also write in Galatians chapter 3, verse 29. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, according to the promise. Last night my family traveled downtown. We watched Fiddler on the Roof at the Memorial Auditorium. It's one of our favorite movies, and now it's probably going to launch up there as one of our favorite plays and musicals we've seen on the stage. But it's a play that depicts the struggles of the Jewish people, right? And who have been on the receiving end of brutal hatred since the beginning. The play ends with the, the people uh, of their village being kicked to the curb and forced to find a new place to call home. We don't know where that home is. The play ends with them kind of migrating off the stage. It didn't matter to the local government officials of the village where they had lived for generations and generations where their new home would be, provided it wasn't there. The fact that the gospel makes it possible for two peoples who were once enemies one in Christ was a mystery indeed and worth whatever Paul endured in the process. I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Perspective. 
In spite of who physically held the key, Paul was pleased to see himself as a prisoner of Christ. It was his pleasure to leverage his life in obedience to his calling and for the sake of those who respond to the glorious gospel. Ephesians 3.13 So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is to your glory. Redeemer, like Paul, and for the sake of others, may you and I not be controlled by our circumstances, but may we see them as being under the sovereign control of God, and may we too leverage them, our circumstances that is, so that others might have opportunity to respond to the life-giving gospel, to the glory of God, and by His grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, or I, I pray, Lord, that our time in the Word will be miraculously used by You and Your Spirit to plant Your words deeply in each of us. Lord, we thank You for the Gospel. We thank You for this mystery that You gave Paul insight to understand and then the calling to share so that we, here in Ringgold, Georgia, Catoosa County, could be rehearsing the same message of the Gospel, singing the songs of the Gospel, resting in Your sovereignty, resting in Your desire to have relationship with men and women through Jesus. So Lord, would You please move in us and work in us so that we won't be controlled by our um, situations and circumstances, but that we would leverage those up for the sake of Your great name. Or would You do that work in us? Because I, for one, I'm not saying anyone else in this room, I, for one, am prone to being held hostage and being bound by my circumstances instead of seeing them as something You're working in me for something greater than me. Help me like Your Son and help me like Your servant Paul to live for the sake of another and for others. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Just stand with us.